This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Eli Lilly, Merck Sharp and Dome Corp and Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. I'm Emma. And I'm Liam. This week, we're putting the spotlight on GLP-1 receptor agonists. We'll discuss considerations to be made when offering GLP-1 RAs, including their multifactorial benefits and adverse events, as well as similarities and differences across the class. Our expert interview this week is with Professor Carol LaRue, who is co-director of the Metabolic Medicine Group at University College Dublin. Professor LaRue's disclosures are available in the episode notes, along with references for the data and guidelines we are discussing today. GLP-1 receptor agonists as a class provide multifactorial effects. The agents are associated with an HbA1c reduction of around 11 millimoles per mole or 1%, as well as weight loss, a slight reduction in blood pressure and cardiovascular protection. The adverse event profile is also fairly consistent across the class. However, there are within-class differences that have been observed in head-to-head trials. For example, the amount of weight loss does vary between agents and some short-acting agents did not demonstrate cardiovascular protection in clinical trials. So let's take a look at the different effects of GLP-1 receptor agonists. These were summarised in a 2021 review of head-to-head trials by Jennifer Trujillo and colleagues. Firstly, looking at the effect of A1C, trial data show these agents lead to reduction in the range of between 0.8 and 1.8%. Generally, it appears that the longer-acting agents have a greater A1C lowering effect than the shorter-acting agents, with semaglutide leading to the greatest A1C reduction. The effect on weight loss also varies across the class, with most agents typically demonstrating weight loss of between 1 and 2.5 kilograms in Phase 3 trials. The exception to this is albuglutide, which demonstrated a weight loss of around 0.5 kilograms. In general, longer-acting agents tended to result in more significant weight loss compared with the short-acting agents. While we cannot make direct comparisons between trials, overall data from these head-to-head trials have meant that ADA and EASD guidelines provide a ranked order of GLP-1 receptor agonists for their weight loss effects, beginning with semaglutide providing the highest weight loss, followed by liraglutide, dulaglutide, exenatide, and finally lixacenatide. Turning now to cardiovascular effects. In recent years, cardiovascular outcome trials have been conducted for agents across the class, measuring a composite primary endpoint of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal myocardial infarction, or non-fatal stroke, abbreviated as MACE. These trials demonstrated GLP-1 RAs are non-inferior compared to placebo across the class, with four agents showing superiority for MACE reduction, which were liraglutide, subcutaneous semaglutide, albuglutide and duraglutide. In most trials, around 80% or more of the participants had confirmed cardiovascular disease or kidney disease, with the remainder having additional risk factors. This included LIDA, which demonstrated superiority for liraglutide in the primary outcome of MACE, with a hazard ratio of 0.87. In the Harmony Outcomes trial, all of the participants had type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. 
This study found alba-glutide to be superior to placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.78. More recently, the Rewind trial found dilaglutide to be more effective than placebo at reducing the occurrence of MACE with a hazard ratio of 0.88. In this trial, only around a third of the participants had confirmed cardiovascular disease on recruitment, representing a broader study population at lower risk of a cardiovascular event compared to previous studies. There was no difference in the composite outcome between the subgroups of those with a history of cardiovascular disease versus those without. Pioneer 6 was published around the same time and investigated the oral formulation of semaglutide. The study found a similar hazard ratio of 0.79 for MACE versus placebo, which demonstrated non-inferiority for semaglutide, but was not statistically significant when tested for superiority. The authors of the published data commented that the similar hazard ratios compared to the sustained 6 trial of subcutaneous semaglutide suggest that the cardiovascular effects are similar regardless of how it's administered. A meta-analysis of these cardiovascular outcome trials by Soren Christensen and colleagues concluded that there were similar effects across the class, including potential effects on kidney outcomes, mainly driven by reduced albuminuria. This contributed to ADA and EASD guidance to offer GLP-1 receptor agonists to people with diabetes and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or who are at high risk. Moving on to adverse events, all GLP-1 receptor agonists are very commonly associated with gastrointestinal side effects during the first three months of administration. These side effects include nausea, vomiting and diarrhoea, which are often mild in severity and tend to diminish over the first month or so of treatment. The 2019 Trujillo review also found differences in the incidence of these adverse events, which appears to be highest with short-acting agents and semaglutide. And of course, another consideration is that all of these agents, with the exception of semaglutide, are only available in an injectable formulation, which may be a barrier for some patients. So with all of these multifactorial effects in mind, how should GLP-1 receptor agonists be used in clinic? And how should we discuss initiating treatment with patients? We are joined today by Professor Carol LaRue, who is Professor of Experimental Pathology and Co-Director of the Metabolic Medicine Group at University College Dublin and Reader in Investigative Science at Imperial College London. Thanks so much for joining us again today, Professor LaRue. So firstly, considering the multifactorial effects of this class, are there particular patient presentations who'd benefit from a GLP-1 receptor agonist over other classes? So I think patients um, who have type 2 diabetes or patients um, who have prediabetes typically benefit from the weight loss independent effects of the GLP-1 receptor analogs. And what we are finding is that it's very helpful, um, not only from a weight loss point of view, but also from an insulin secretion point of view um, for to use this medication. So it's really patients who want to lose weight who have diabetes or people who want to lose weight, who have prediabetes, that would benefit most. But patients who just want to lose weight, 
uh, because of the disease of obesity, um, but don't have diabetes or prediabetes can also benefit significantly from the GLP-1 class. And the reason is because this medication makes people feel less hungry and more satisfied because it treats the part of the brain, the subcortical areas of the brain that is involved with obesity. And that's what makes these medications so good. And equally, in people without additional considerations and who simply have a need for glycemic control, is it worth considering these agents in, in these people? So patients with type 2 diabetes um, who do not have obesity also benefit from the GLP-1 class because it works as an incretin and therefore allows the pancreas to secrete insulin when required. Um, but also patients sometimes have the medication and don't lose any weight, but yet have significant improvements in glycemia. And we know for people with type 2 diabetes that the medications as a class also show a mortality benefit, uh, meaning that we can have fewer heart attacks um, in these patients. We also see improvements in blood pressure and inflammation, so multiple benefits beyond glycemia. And does the injectable nature of the class ever interfere with or limit your ability to prescribe it to your patients? It is interesting to consider whether or not injections is a barrier for the use of GLP-1s. And what we have seen is that it's not a barrier for patients, but sometimes a barrier for doctors, because doctors don't feel comfortable in explaining how to use an injectable therapy. Um, because they think it may take a little bit of extra time or they're not comfortable in, in going through the details. But when we talk to patients, either with type 2 diabetes or even those without type 2 diabetes who may benefit from the GLP-1 class, we find that the injections is not really a barrier, especially when you think about all the additional benefits beyond glycemia, for example, the weight loss or the improvements in blood pressure, etc. So um, the the devices are very well um, set out. They're easy to manage. The injection is as close to painless as possible, and patients tolerate it really well. It's interesting that patients initially um, may not be very enthusiastic about taking an injection once a day or now once a week, but um, once they understand how it works and how easy it is, um, the resistance very often disappears. And then what about the oral formulation of semaglutide? Have you found that this comes with its own challenges? Yeah, the fact that semaglutide is now available as an oral formulation is again going to re revolutionize what we do. Um, now, it is a little bit um, cumbersome, you know, how we take the medications initially, but it's only going to improve as time goes on. And I'm very much looking forward to the next five years and all the innovations that's going to happen. So I certainly think it's a step in the right direction. It's very helpful that we have both the once weekly injection as well as an oral formulation available because it also gives patients a choice. And what advice do you give to patients to manage adverse events associated with this class? The first thing we do when we talk about the side effects of the medications are that we are very upfront. We talk about the nausea, that's normally mild or moderate, and we tell patients that it will come, but also it will go. Very important to reassure patients that they're not going to be stuck with the nausea for the rest of their lives. 
We also talk about some of the other um, mild or moderate effects, for example, constipation, because that's something that patients don't always associate with the medication, and yet um, it's easy enough to manage, um, you know, within the clinical situation. Um, we discuss the rather rare complications with patients as well. For example, the risk of developing gallstones, which may be three in a hundred, uh, relatively rare, but it can happen. Um, we have never found that the side effects of the medications will be off-putting for a patient to start the treatment. But if the patients don't know about the side effects and it happens, that can concern them and they may discontinue the drug. Now, the way we handle it is to suggest that we can slow the titration dose down. So we only increase to the next level once the patient is comfortable and is free of side effects. So, for example, if somebody is nauseous um, after the 0.6 milligram dose and they immediately escalate within a week to 1.2 milligrams, they may vomit. And that's no good to man or beast at that point in time. So if they, for example, start the medication and they have nausea, they can stay on the same dose maybe for a week longer if it's loractatide or even for a month longer if it's semactatide in those settings. So I would say slow the dose titration down because that's going to um, help us reduce the side effects. And how would the effect of this class on other body systems, such as the cardiovascular and renal systems, uh, influence their use in patients who have pre-existing conditions? I think the effects that we see of the GLP-1 class, for example, on the kidneys, um, improving blood pressure, or even on the heart by reducing inflammation, of course, we see the improvements in body weight as well as the improvements in glycemia. These are all incredibly positive. And now with the emerging evidence that it also is very positive when it comes to fatty liver disease, I think we will be using this class of medications more often to prevent end organ damage, but also to treat end organ damage. For example, to treat people with um, uh, NASH or people with chronic kidney disease. Um, and that's where the benefits will lie also from a health economic point of view, because it's the complications of obesity and the complications of diabetes that really drives the costs of these diseases. And finally, do you have any other words of advice that you'd like to offer to our audience? So my final thoughts would be that the class of GLP-1 receptor analogues have changed the way we think about type 2 diabetes as a systems disease. And have even changed the way we think about obesity as a disease of the subcortical areas of the brain. The future, however, is going to be even brighter when we're going to be able to start combining different gut hormones, for example, GLP-1 plus GIP or GLP-1 plus amylin. And I think that is going to drive remission, a glycemic remission in people with type 2 diabetes or even drive remission of obesity as a disease. So the future is very bright. Thanks very much again for your time today. In summary, GLP-1-RAs may be beneficial treatment options for people with type 2 diabetes and a need to improve glycemic control. They can also offer benefits in assisting weight loss and providing a reduced risk of major adverse cardiovascular events. 
When a patient starts at GLP-1-RA, education should be provided on administration and adverse events that can be expected. Thanks for joining us. In a few weeks' time, we'll be speaking to Professor Darren Maguire, who's an expert in cardiovascular outcomes trials, to discuss data on the cardiorenal effects of giving GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors in combination. If you have a question for Professor Maguire on this topic, please send us an email at contact at or message us on social media. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast on your favourite app or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also find links to all the references discussed today in the episode notes, as well as links to our social media accounts and website, where you can find more free and accredited CME content. Join us in two weeks for the next episode when we'll be discussing considerations for initiating SGLT2 inhibitors.